God of grace, we give ourselves over to you now to hear from you, uh, to experience you, to hopefully know you more deeply because of the time that we spend together this morning as we sing, as we pray, as we hear from your word, as we spend time with one another. Open our ears, open our hearts, grant us the capacity to uh, hear you and your word. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, over the, the past few years, I've started to notice this thing happening. Uh, and this is a thing that's probably been happening for kind of a while, uh, but, but I'm, I'm becoming much more conscious of it recently. Um, so I am not, by like any stretch of the imagination, a neat freak. Uh, but I've started to notice that even though I don't actually really like cleaning, uh, like at all, <laughs> Uh, clutter and mess really get on my nerves. And I've decided recently that this cleaning thing is, uh, is basically my mom's fault. So I'm just going to blame my mom for this. Because um, you see, my mom, my mom really is, and some of you know my mom, my mom really is a neat freak. Uh, and so growing up, our house was, already, uh, was always incredibly tidy, just impeccably clean all the time. Like, I mean, like, like, like a, if I threw my coat on a chair in the living room, that was a really big problem, okay? So that's how clean we're talking here. Um, and that tidiness, over time, that became normal for me. It was just the normal rhythm. It was the normal mode. It was the, the background noise of our household. And so even though I am all on my own, not, you know, necessarily the tidiest person in the world, I cannot cook in a, in a cluttered kitchen. I've got to clean the kitchen. I cannot work in a cluttered living room. I've got to clean the living room before I do anything in it. It drives me crazy. Um, do you have things like this that you can point to in your lives, these sort of uh, rhythms or patterns that seem completely normal to you that are maybe not entirely normal to other people? Uh, was this maybe ever a, a roommate problem for you? Okay, actually, do you know what? I guarantee that it was a roommate problem for you. And if, and if it wasn't a roommate problem for you, my friend, you were the problem, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, let, let me give you an example. My wife, uh, when my wife Ginny uh, was in college in Saskatoon, uh, she went to U of S, uh, she lived in, in a house with a couple of close friends, and I would get these calls from her. I was in Regina, she's in Saskatoon, and I'd get these calls from her, where she'd complain about some, some point of tension in the house between her and, and her roommates. And the source of the tension after the conversation, we always tracked back to some version of, but my mom, Right? Uh, you know, but, but my mom makes the sauce this way, or but, but my mom cleans the floor by, or but my mom always ironed my jeans, which apparently is a thing people do. Uh, <laughs> and whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we attend to it or not, in the small things and in the big things, we are formed deeply and profoundly by the rhythms, right? By the habits of our household and of our communities. So let's just if it's okay with you, let's just put a pin in that for a little bit, and I'm going to come back around to that as we get closer to the end. Uh, our text this morning is drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is, along with chapter 5, <clears throat> excuse me, along with chapter 5, uh, the most important passage, I really am willing to say this, the most important passage in the book of Deuteronomy, and one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. In fact, in many ways, this passage is the defining statement that guides ancient Israelite religion and most of the history of Judaism. 
And any observant Jew and many non-observant Jews could recite for you Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 at the drop of a hat, probably in Hebrew. Okay, so this is a big deal. We call this passage, it has a name, that's how big of a deal it is. We call this passage the Shema. Uh, and we call it the Shema because we're going to have a slide up in a second here. There we go. This is my only slide today. You invited a Hebrew teacher to come and teach you, so I'm, so I'm going to teach you all some Hebrew today. Uh, that's what we're going to do. It's called the Shema because that's the first word in the passage. This is the passage up here. So we have Hebrew, Hebrew on the top. We have transliterated Hebrew. So that's Hebrew in our letters and characters in the middle. And then we have the passage in English. This is uh, chapter four, uh, 6, verse 4. So, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That's the Hebrew. So it's called the Shema because of that first word. Shema means hear or attend. So I want to, can I teach this to you guys? Instead of reading the passage, how about we... Can we learn it together? Uh, and, and we're going to, if it's okay, we're going to stand while we do this. This is not a small thing to be learning the Shema, okay? Um, so we're just going to do a little call and response, and I'm going to say it, and then you're going to say it back to me. So I assume that you're going to track along the middle line. If you read Hebrew characters, you can track along the top line, but you probably know this already if you can do that, okay? Uh, so here, uh, just, just respond to what I say. Shema Yisrael. Good. You got to get the Y in there, right? Because every there's no such thing as a word that starts with a vowel in Hebrew. That's not that doesn't exist. Okay. So let's say that again. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Pause for a second again. You'll see I have Adonai there in square brackets. That's not actually the word in Hebrew. If you look way up there, so the third word in the Hebrew line. Right, you got that sort of little dot, and you got the weird hook and the and the long and the weird hook and the thing. I know. Don't, don't worry about it. Uh, that's that's the name of the Lord. This is the 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 personal name of God. Uh, and in Hebrew, we don't articulate the personal name of God ever. Right. So if you know, if I even if I'm in an academic conference and I'm reading some Hebrew and I come across the personal name of God, I don't say it. Instead, I say Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. And Terry mentioned this uh, to us last week, right? Anytime in your English Bible where you see Lord, capital O, capital, o, capital L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the name of the Lord, okay? And so, you know, we're going to maintain this tradition this morning. This is something I teach my students. We're not going to articulate the divine name. We're going to say Adonai instead, okay? So let's say those two words again, Adonai Eloheinu. Okay? Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Good, yeah, I heard some of you got the chet in there. That's good, right? right? That's actually important. I mean, because ha and ha are different letters in Hebrew, okay? So we're going to try that again. We're going to do the call and response, and then after that, we'll see if we can do the whole thing, okay? So, so Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. That's good. You're good. Okay, can we try the whole thing? I'll say the whole thing, and then I'll say it along with you, okay? Let's try this. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Let's go. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear thou Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is unique or the Lord is one. Grab a seat. So we know the verse now, right? You know the verse now. And I expect you to remember this verse in the future. And if you, ever are, if you ever go to temple with a Jewish friend, you will hear the Shema, and so you'll know what, what is being said. That's a good thing. But what does it mean? <clears throat> First, notice the call to attend. Shema, pay attention. Listen up. Right? This is an imperative verb, a command to listen up. 
It is found regularly throughout the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, this is a, one of the basic theme words of Deuteronomy. Listen, listen, attend. Second, the command comes from the Lord, from Adonai, who is specifically called our God. And this <clears throat> is also important. This relationship, the covenant that Israel is in and is being outlined in this book, in the book of Deuteronomy, is not with like just anybody. This covenant is with the Lord himself. Additionally, this Lord places himself in direct and clear relationship with his people. He is their God. And this is not, this there is not about possession. This is about belonging. This is the way that we say, my son, my friend, my husband, my sister. We don't own those people, right? We are in relationship with them. In a a meaningful sense, we are owned by them. God is in relationship with his people. He is not distant. He is present with them. He loves them, and he is specifically and intentionally forming them into a nation meant to carry out his will on earth. Third, the phrase, the Lord is one, or the Lord is unique, depending on how we translate this. This is meant to clarify the preceding statement. The Lord is not their God in the sense that there are many, many gods, and the Lord happens to be the one that the Israelites worship. No, He is their God in that relational sense, but He is also singular. He is unique, unlike any other. And, well, this might seem old hat for us. This is, this is cutting-edge theology at the edge of the land. Uh, this is the cutting edge of what we call monotheism. Monotheism means uh, there is only one God. Now, unlike Judaism and those religions that arise out of Judaism, like Christianity and Islam, uh, I don't know if you know this, but, but basically nobody in the world is monotheistic, and nobody else ever has been. Monothe- monotheism is very strange, actually, historically. We believe believing in one almighty God is the normal way of doing things. We think that because we live after the rise of these religions and the dominance of these religions in the world, when Israel stood on the border of the promised land, fleeing from Egypt and the terrible wilderness, the world had like zero monotheists in it, okay? Um, even the Israelites weren't really monotheistic at this point. They had taken on many of the religious values and beliefs of Egypt, and while they were starting to become convinced that this God uh, who brought them up out of slavery was, you know, kind of a big deal, he seemed important, uh, the idea that the Lord was truly unique, perhaps even that there were no other gods, was pretty radical stuff. This is pretty radical stuff that Moses is teaching them. In fact, Israel's inability to really commit to this way of thinking would dog them throughout almost all of their history and actually have terrible results. But here at the beginning, on the cusp of their entry into the land, they are told clearly and precisely that they have been brought into a personal and immediate relationship with this unique God. And this is connected directly to the next verse. The command to love God with heart, soul, might. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This command is a response to the Shema. Because God is their God, and a unique God who has brought them up out of Egypt, they are to love God with their whole selves. Here it is worth noting really quickly what these three words, heart, soul, and might, mean. 
When we use the word heart, we mean, in English, our emotional selves, right? With all of our heart. Um, that's not how the ancient Israelites thought. In Hebrew, the heart is the seat of the intellect, what we would call the mind. There's actually quite a good argument to be made that mind would be a better translation here. The Hebrew word, the next Hebrew word, nephesh, that follows the second word, translated as soul in your translation, refers to the spiritual self, to one's inner being, to the essential self. And finally, might or strength, moed in Hebrew, refers to, I mean, well, I mean, might or strength, right? It's actually a pretty good translation. Uh, to, to the will, maybe that's a good way of thinking of it, to the, the human will, to the power to make choices and decisions. So the Israelites are being told to love God with their entire intellect, with their spiritual selves, and with their whole will. Put differently, because God is their God, because God is unique and has saved them, has brought them up out of Egypt, they are to respond with complete and total love and devotion with their entire selves. The next portion of the chapter flows again directly out of the command to attend and the command to love. So we're told to attend, we're told to love. The Israelites are now commanded to teach. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them in your dwelling, in your house, in your walking upon the road, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is Deuteronomy 6, 6-9. This instruction from Moses does not merely apply to the immediate content of chapters 5 and 6, but to the entire covenant that is being described in the book of Deuteronomy. All of this stuff that the Israelites have agreed to and that they are again agreeing to now, this is what they must keep in their hearts and in their minds. And they are told to do this by passing these words along to their children. The word that is translated sometimes as repeat or teach in verse 7 may actually be kind of like a double entendre in Hebrew, referring to a word that means, uh, one word that means rep repetition and another word that means sharpen, to sharpen, to repeat. Uh, and, and do you guys know how to sharpen something? Some of you guys probably sharpen things. I sharpened my knives this week, my kitchen knives. Uh, and, and do you know how I sharpen my knives? I get a water stone. I use a Japanese water stone. And I take the knife and I uh, basically rub it against the stone again and again and again and again and again and again at a specific angle over and over and over again. Uh, because sharpening is repetition. And repetition is sharpening. Right? They're mutually defining ideas. This is something that any teacher, including me, will tell you learning requires repetition, and preferably repetition under many and varied circumstances. The Israelites are told to teach their children at home, to teach their children while they're away, when they lie down and when they get up. The process of teaching is meant to be pervasive, all-encompassing. It is meant to happen everywhere, all the time. <clears throat> now, of course, this isn't a command to just, like, to, to just recite the covenant verbatim while on a journey. What this means is that the Israelites are to teach their children situationally, taking every moment and opportunity that presents itself in order to remind and reinforce what it means to be a people in covenant relationship 
with the Lord. So don't imagine an Israelite mother uh, you know, reciting verses to her son while they're on their way to the market. Instead, imagine an Israelite son walking along the road and noticing that the, the field beside him is not harvested right to the edges and right into the corners, that there's wheat left in the field. And he's like, Mom, why is there wheat left in the field? That doesn't make any sense. Why didn't they harvest all the wheat? And his mother, imagine his mother explaining to him that this practice is part of the Torah, part of the covenant, the covenant with the Lord, and that the corners are unharvested so that those who are in need, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, so that those people will have food to sustain them. Imagine her explaining that this is what it means to follow God, that we take care of one another, that we care even and especially for those who have difficulty caring for themselves. That's the picture that you should have in mind, not just recitation, but situational teaching. That is the way that instruction is being described here. Uh, And that's not all. Uh, Not only are the Israelites to teach their children regularly and situationally, they're also instructed to affix reminders of the covenant um, on their hands or their arms and on their foreheads and on the entrances to, the, to their houses and on the gates of their homes. Now, it's hard to know if these instructions are meant to be metaphorical or literal in this passage, and they've actually been taken both ways uh, historically by observant Jews over the centuries. Uh, this has included practices like affixing a physical copy of some portion of the Torah to the forehead or to the arm in, in like a box or to the, in a box of some kind. Uh, this is usually called a phylactery or a tefillim. Um, this also includes the, Jew, the traditional Jewish practice of placing uh, a mezuzah uh, on the door. A mezuzah is a little box that you put on your door lintel that contains within it uh, a scroll, and written on the scroll is this exact passage from Deuteronomy. Uh, the Shema is written on that scroll. Um, now, whether this is meant to be literal or metaphorical, are we really supposed to affix these things to our bodies or put them on our doorposts? Like the command to teach the covenant at all times, this is a command to keep reminders of the covenant everywhere in order to keep this relationship with the Lord at the center of faith and community life. Now, as Christians, all of this is contextualized in a slightly different way. You see, Deuteronomy is contextualized especially by the exodus out of Egypt. The entire book is built around the premise that the Israelites were once slaves, that they have been delivered, and that they now are in relationship with the God who delivered them. As Christians, we contextualize this book in the story of Jesus Christ and his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. As Terry noted for us last week, Jesus actually takes up this very passage in his ministry. One day, a religious scholar asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer was to quote Deuteronomy and Leviticus together, to take two verses and put them together. And Matthew records Jesus' reply like this. This is from Matthew uh, chapter 22. He says, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When he says all the law and the prophets, that's a shorthand way of saying the whole of the scriptures. Everything that's in the scriptures hangs on these two. That's That's kind of a big statement, right? All of the scriptures hang on these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus saw the core teaching of the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6 as a distillation of the message of all of Scripture. All of creation is meant to respond to its creator, to God, in love. And out of that love flows true and divine love for our neighbor. This is the bigger, broader story in which we as Christians walk, to which we belong. Well, Deuteronomy is properly contextualized in the event of the Exodus and God's great act of liberation for Israel. Our understanding of this passage is contextualized in the larger story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, of the cross, which was and is God's great act of liberation for all of humanity. In that act, God utterly fulfilled and completed the requirements of the book of Deuteronomy, but God also blew the doors of the whole thing open, radically expanding the invitation to know and to love God to all people everywhere. And that's the story that we're a part of, the story in which we find ourselves. God is redeeming all of creation and desires to do that work within and through each one of us and all of us collectively. So how do we read the Shema Christianly? When read in light of the cross, this passage teaches us how we are formed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate goal. It teaches us that first we are in relationship with God. He must be our God, and that we must love Him with our whole selves. Out of this love for God, we begin to see creation in the way that God sees it, and other people as God sees them, as treasured and loved children He desires to be in relationship with. This encourages us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. As Thomas Merton put it, we do not exist for ourselves. It is out of this love, this work that God does within us, that we are directed appropriately. This is the standard by which we judge and determine whether our actions are good and appropriate actions. Love of God should lead to love of neighbor. And as we live out this love, we are formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So it turns into this kind of wild feedback loop. A cycle in which we love God more and so love our neighbor more. And then we are more like Jesus Christ, which means that we love God more, etc., 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 etc. And it goes around and around and around. And just like the Shema in Deuteronomy, all of this happens in the context of God's liberation of all people from death and sin at the cross. That all people are welcome to this liberation. And that brings us to some practical consequences to all of this stuff. The, the immediate outworking of the Shema's call to love God with our whole selves is the instruction to remain faithful and to teach others, especially the next generation, about this relationship. Always keep in mind that we are forming and teaching the next generation with our words and actions. We're doing that no matter what. And so maybe we should try to do it consciously. So how do we accomplish this work of passing on the faith? First and foremost, we model this relationship. There is not a speech, there is not a curriculum or a multimedia presentation in the world that can hold a candle to a person who acts out their convictions and their faith. And I mean that both for good and for ill. Modeling poor behavior 
And a lack of love is incredibly effective too. It just has the wrong effects. And the news cycle this past week is ample evidence of that. The fairly revolting experience of hearing somebody defend sexual abuse of a minor using a story from the Bible. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where we publicly do things that are shameful, wicked, and against the covenant with God. Those are incredibly effective teaching tools, right? They just have the wrong effects. Secondly, we do this work all the time, and we do it everywhere. We do it when we walk on the way, right? We do it when we're in our homes, uh, when we lie down, when we get up, and everywhere in between. This isn't some process of teaching artificial facts or rules. We are integrating our faith into the nooks and crannies of everyday life so that a conversation with a child about soccer practice can mean an opportunity to discuss how we can be kind, loving, and gracious towards other people. Incidentally, my friend Joel Thiessen, who is a sociologist of religion, I told him I was preaching about this, and he told me to tell you, so I'm passing on a message from Joel here. He told me to tell you that sociological research supports all of this formation stuff, too. So, you know, just saying. It's there. The sociologists are on board. Uh, But the the Bible says it, too, which is what I'm particularly interested in. Uh, Finally, finally, for Christians, it's very important to realize that this work does not only belong to parents or even to grandparents or aunts or uncles. It does belong to parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. But the church is itself a spiritual family, and so we are all doing this work for and with each other. We are doing this work together collectively. So I'm going to pause there just for a second, just in case anybody had any questions. Tim's giving me a no, no questions? No? Okay, that's cool. I'm happy to keep rolling. I'm going to give you like two seconds to shut one out if you have one. Okay, that's fine. We'll keep going. Um, I said at the beginning that my mother formed me into a habitual habit, right? To the habitual habit of a tidy house, even against my actual nature, which is often how some of this stuff happens. Now, that isn't necessarily a spiritual virtue. My mom probably would say it is, but I don't know if it necessarily is a spiritual virtue. Uh, But it's a good example of the kind of teaching that I'm talking about. It wasn't because of any speech or reminder or even punishment that she provided It was because of her actions, because of the way that she modeled that value. And not for nothing, but the fact that she modeled her faith for me and made that part of the rhythm of our household as well, well, let's just say that made a fairly significant impact on me too. So let me ask you a couple of questions just to finish up here. Where are you creating rhythms in your life, both for yourself and for the people around you, that facilitate and encourage love of God and love of neighbor? How are you being formed to be like Jesus? And how are you forming others in this way? Is your love of God, for the Lord who is unique, is it written on your arms, your forehead? Is it affixed to your doorway? Are you teaching this love as you're going along the road, as you dwell in your home, as you rise up and as you lay down? Pray with me. God of grace, we are cognizant that you call us to a life of love 
that you call us to a life of service towards you. That you call us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And we're also conscious that this is very often entirely not in keeping with our own natures. And so we pray for your help and your guidance. Spirit, we pray for your work in our lives that is transformative, that is changing us. Enable and empower each one of us here today to submit ourselves to this process, this process outlined even in this first covenant with your people Israel, of recognizing who you are, our unique and beautiful and liberating God, and giving our whole lives, our whole loves over to you, and consequently teaching these things to everybody around us in word and in deed, in every nook and every cranny of our lives. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.